Hi, my name is Brian. Welcome to Episode 5 in the podcast, Homo Deus, Humanity's Evolution from Social Institutions to World Peace. In Chapter 5 of his book, Harari talks about the relationship between religion and science. It seems that people have already said a million times everything there is to say about the question. And yet in practice, Rory tells us, science and religion are like a husband and wife who after 500 years of marriage counseling still don't know each other. They are the odd couple. What Harari says in this chapter makes a lot of sense. But neither scientists nor religious adherents seem to understand it. Why is there still so much confusion? Before I get into the meat of this episode, I thought I would start with some housekeeping. This podcast follows an audiobook format. That is, we are walking through Yuval Noah Harari's actual book, Homo Deus, A Short History of Tomorrow, chapter by chapter. I summarize what Harari said, and then discuss other aspects of humanity's evolution that are pertinent to the chapter's material. It is part audiobook, part book review, and possibly with a splash of book club. The main point, though, is to get the most out of it, you need to listen to the episodes in order. Just like a non-fiction book, each episode builds on what was talked about in the previous episodes. So I would encourage you to start with the trailer episode, and then listen to them in sequence. Thank you. Now on to episode 5. Harari explains that the source of confusion regarding the relationship between science and religion comes from a faulty definition of religion. All too often people confuse religion with superstition, spirituality, or belief in supernatural powers and gods. Religion is none of those things. Rather, given that religion is created by humans and not by gods, it should be defined by its social function and not the existence of deities. Therefore, a reasonable definition of religion is any all-encompassing story that confers superhuman legitimacy on human laws, norms, and values. Religion legitimizes social structures by arguing that they reflect superhuman laws. As far as we know, all human societies have these beliefs. Harari gives lots of great examples to illustrate these points. You should read his chapter. I will repeat just one of them for you. According to Karl Marx, we cannot change the laws of history. No matter what we do, the capitalists will continue to accumulate private property, which is bound to create class conflict and they are destined to be defeated by the rising proletariat. This is a superhuman law that cannot be changed. It is different from the offside rule in football, because we are free to change the offside rule tomorrow if we want to. 
Football is not a religion because we understand that the laws are made by humans and that we can change them if we want to. We need to understand religion as a deal. It gives a complete description of the world and offers us a well-defined contract with predetermined goals. For example, God exists. He told us to behave in certain ways. If you obey God, you'll go to heaven. If you disobey him, you'll burn in hell. The very clarity of this deal allows society to define common norms and values that regulate human behavior. So what about science? Again, there is a lot of misunderstanding. People often view science as simply the pursuit of truth using objective methods, and then view themselves as relying only on science for their worldview, and therefore they possess the unbiased truth. But the reality is quite different. Science always needs religious assistance in order to create viable human institutions. Science studies how the world functions, but there is no scientific method for determining how humans ought to behave. For example, science tells us that humans cannot survive without oxygen. But is it okay to suffocate criminals by asphyxiation? Science doesn't know the answer to that question. Only religions can provide us with the necessary guidance. Or should we travel to the moon? Or dam a river? Or hold an election? Science cannot answer these questions either. Whenever science wants to do something, it relies on religious insights because there is no scientific method for determining how humans ought to behave. We often associate science with values of secularism and tolerance. If so, early modern Europe is the last place you would have expected a scientific revolution. If you traveled to Cairo or Istanbul around 1600, you would have found multicultural and tolerant metropolises. They were true liberal paradises, at least compared to London and Paris, which were awash in religious extremism. And yet the scientific revolution began in London and Paris rather than Cairo and Istanbul. Science and religion are not incompatible with each other, In fact, they need each other. It is customary to portray the history of modernity as a struggle between science and religion. The way we tell the story, both science and religion are interested in the truth, and because each upholds a different truth, they are destined to clash. In fact, Harari tells us that neither science nor religion care that much about the truth. Hence, they can easily compromise, coexist, and cooperate. Religion is interested, above all, in social order. It aims to create and maintain the social structure. Science, on the other hand, is interested in power. Through research, it aims to acquire the power to cure diseases, fight wars, and produce food. As individuals, scientists or priests 
may give immense importance to the truth. But as collective institutions, science and religion prefer power and order over truth. Therefore, they make good bedfellows. Rather than telling a story about searching for truth, it would be far more accurate to describe modern history as a process of formulating a deal between science and one particular religion, namely humanism. Modern society believes in humanist dogmas and uses science not in order to question these dogmas, but in order to implement them. Let me say that again. The religion of modern society is humanism, and society uses science to implement the dogmas of humanism, not to question them. I agree with everything Harari says in this chapter. It's a great chapter. His definition of religion is very helpful. I'm sure more could be said. For example, anyone who has been in America on a Sunday would know that football is definitely a religious rite. But the religious belief it is affirming is not the football rules, so I agree that football itself is not the religion, but it is a belief in America and all it stands for. This is why having people kneel for the national anthem is such a problem. Kneeling for the anthem challenges the American religious deal. Much more could be said on that, but the main thing I want to focus on in this episode is the confusion that surrounds the relationship between science and religion. Harari's definition of religion seems very clear and straightforward. Why doesn't anybody understand it this way? Neither scientists nor religious adherents seem to get it. Both seem set in their thinking about this issue in terms of beliefs in the supernatural. If you talk to your friends and relatives, do you think they will get it? Or would they be pretty set on defining religion in terms of a belief in God? I don't know your friends and relatives, but I think Harari's definition would be a pretty hard sell for most people. Why is there a veil of misunderstanding here? When I look on Wikipedia, I see that the modern concept of religion, as an abstraction that entails distinct set of beliefs or doctrines, is a recent invention in the English language. Such usage began in the 17th century. Wikipedia attributes the new word to events such as the splitting of Christendom during the Protestant Reformation and globalization in the Age of Exploration which involved contact with numerous non-European cultures and languages. The use of the word religion roughly coincided with the transition from monotheism to humanism. This makes a lot of sense because as soon as you call something a religion, you are basically acknowledging that it's not really true. Prior to the 17th century, adherents of Christianity Islam, Judaism, and all the polytheistic worldviews didn't consider themselves religious. As far as they were concerned, they were just describing reality. They had a crystal clear view of what reality was about, all about, 
and therefore to them it would make no sense to call what they believed a religion. As if it was some sort of hobby belief they held in addition to the beliefs that really mattered for organizing society. No, they just believed in the truth. By labeling all these belief systems as religions, humanism assigned them to the dustbin of history. Humanism was now the plain-sighted truth, and all the monotheists and polytheists who came before them were declared self-deluded. This is the same story that all the other religions told. From the perspective of any vibrant religion, they have the clear-sighted truth and all others are self-deluded. This is the way the Christians felt about the Muslims in the year 1000 and vice versa. So it makes sense that humanism would come up with new, creative language to make it clear that all the other religions were mostly arbitrary delusions. It is really helpful how Harari's definition is broad enough to include humanism as a religion. Of course, Harari can only do this because he himself no longer believes in humanism. You shouldn't expect much success trying to convince a communist or a liberal that the superhuman beliefs that they hold have a religious character to them. The religions that are the most powerful and vibrant are the ones that people don't even realize they are members of. They just fully accept it as the truth. Understanding what religion is and the relationship between religion and science is not that complicated. We are not talking about rocket science here. But there remains a veil of misunderstanding because of the way we evolved. We have evolved to turn a blind eye to the arbitrary nature of our intersubjective realities and to the arbitrary nature of the violence they condone. After all, we need to believe in them together. That's how we evolved to cooperate. And if we can't cooperate, we implode on our own self-destructive tendencies. That is why the odd couple, science and religion, still wear a veil of misunderstanding, even though they were married 500 years ago. Harari commented in this chapter that there is no scientific method for determining how humans ought to behave. Is this really true? Right now, science is married to humanism, and it has been a wild ride. I'm not sure what we expected, but it has been more like the marriage of Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra than, let's say, the Pope and his church. Amazing technological advancements, huge populations, terrifying destructive wars, mass extinctions, and environmental destruction, including climate change. Yes, the marriage of science and humanism has been a wild ride, and it has led us to the brink. But what if science divorced humanism and was married to a much simpler spouse? What if it was married to a simple concept such as it would be a good thing if humanity survived? If this was the only value judgment we gave it, could science tell us how we ought to behave? 
If you have been listening to the earlier episodes, you will know that I think the answer is yes, and that science would tell us that our best chance is dedicating ourselves to retraining our desires and learning new self-sacrificing ways of cooperating. But let's consider an example. In an earlier chapter, Harari pointed to rape and torture as being wrong exclusively because of the negative subjective experiences associated with them. That's really all humanism has to say about rape and torture. Humanism judges human feelings to be the most important and tells science to stop there. But what if science was freed from its controlling spouse? With this freedom, I think we would find that science does have more to say. True, science can't interpret subjective experiences yet, but acts of violence like rape and torture have negative effects on the brain that science can quantify. These violent actions also result in negative subsequent behaviors that can be statistically quantified, both in the perpetrator, in the victim, and in those connected to them. Torture and rape, like other acts of violence, are contagious, just like pandemics. They harm the individual, but they also infect the community, leading it down the path to more violence instead of sustainability. So I think science would point to rape and torture as being wrong behavior when paired with the simple concept of humanity surviving is a good thing. That being said, I admit science cannot offer us proof. Sometimes I doubt. I see a TV commercial from Mercedes-Benz touting how environmentally friendly their cars are, and I doubt. They tell me sometimes the best mark we can leave on the world is no mark at all. And I think, hey, maybe there is a possible future where the rich people are all driving around in Mercedes-Benz cars. But I don't really believe that. The evidence that we cannot continue on as we are is building, but science cannot provide definitive proof of the best way forward. Like Einstein was able to prove his theory of relativity by measuring how the gravitational force of the sun bends starlight. As Harari discusses in his book, predicting the future is difficult. We need to look at the various trends and then decide which are the ones that really matter. And the right answer only becomes 100% clear when the trend is very close to fulfillment. That is one reason why many people follow the path of least resistance. But what is easy today may not be the best choice, and we may one day conclude that we had plenty of information to make better choices. As I was writing this, I picked up the June-July 2020 copy of Time magazine from our local bookstore. In the magazine, there is a small article by Greta Thunberg. In response to those who say we must adopt the so-called Green Recovery Plan from the COVID-19 pandemic, Greta says, we must not for one second believe that it will be even close to what is actually required. We have to tear up existing agreements on a scale we can't even begin to imagine. 
Even debating it risks doing more harm than good, as it sends a signal that the changes needed are possible within today's societies. I think this is similar to what I have been saying in this podcast. The changes needed are not possible for Homo sapiens, as we know them, within today's societies. However, like myself, Greta sees hope in spite of this dark and seemingly hopeless assessment. She says everywhere there are signs of change, of awakening. We have passed the social tipping point. We can no longer look away from what our society ignores, whether it is equality, justice, or sustainability. We must do the seemingly impossible. And that is up to you and me, because no one will do it for us. I hope someday I get to talk to Greta about this. I see a lot of overlap in what we are saying, and I would like to find out if she agrees. We are certainly approaching the issue from different starting points. Her starting point is climate change, and my starting point is human evolution. But from my perspective at least, we end up at very similar points. We both agree that Homo sapiens cannot go on as we are, We are racing towards disaster. And as we approach this disaster, Greta is saying, Look, I see a revolution in the way people are relating to each other all around me. It is all connected. I am saying the only way forward for Homo sapiens involves change fundamental enough that it means evolving into a new species. Something like we did in the last cognitive revolution. And I believe I am seeing it happen all around me. And I believe science is supportive of this conclusion. Firstly, the science around climate change is pretty clear. We can't go on as we are. Secondly, although less developed, science could tell us that the acts of violence we commit, like torture and rape, damage us and lead us down a path to more violence. Thirdly, I think the new ways that people are relating to each other, like Greta observed, can be measured. Although the research would need to be developed. And fourthly, I think a scientific investigation tells us that our own evolution out of the animal world involved a key change in the way we handle our internal violence that enabled us to cooperate on a much larger scale than other animals. And science would also tell us that this change, while certainly enabling us to reach new heights, has a dark side. And it certainly has not put us in a position of mastery of our own violent tendencies. This is what I believe science would tell us if it was freed from the control of humanism and we had the capacity to listen. Maybe it is time for you and me to be courageous and step out in faith in science. We have talked a lot about science and religion, and in his book, Harari has an interesting discussion of how spirituality and religion are related. But we haven't talked about science and faith. Faith is often associated with exclusively religious belief, or blind faith without any evidence. But this is a misunderstanding. Faith is really an everyday thing. When you sit in a chair, you have faith that it will hold you. 
Faith represents a belief you are willing to act on. And it is implicit that there will be a cost to you if your faith was misplaced. If the chair you are going to sit in fails, you will fall to the ground. So yes, faith is an everyday matter, and you can have faith in science. And I hope you will have faith in science and be willing to step out of your comfort zone and do difficult things. And I also hope you have faith in humanity. Faith in what we can become. Evolution has never seen a species like Homo sapiens. We have climbed to the top, and we now dominate all other species in a way no other species has ever done. There have been many great moments and achievements in the past 70,000 years, but there has also been much violence and self-deception. An argument could be made that the Earth would be better off without us. And we are now at a tipping point where we must change or self-destruct. But on the other hand, like Greta says, everywhere there are signs of change, of awakening. These signs point to the possibility of a new and improved humanity. But is a new humanity really going to happen? This requires a step of faith, because we don't have proof, only an accumulation of evidence. And if you start on this path towards a new method of cooperating, it will come with some cost. I hope you are willing to take this step. Let me summarize what we talked about in Episode 5. Science and religion are the odd couple. Even though they've been married to each other for 500 years, they still won't understand each other. This misunderstanding is facilitated by a faulty definition of religion. Given that religion is created by humans, it is best defined by its social function. Religion then can be defined as a set of superhuman beliefs that societies use to govern human behavior. As collective institutions, neither science nor religion care that much about the truth. Science cares about power. Religion cares about social order. Therefore, science and religion make good bedfellows. Neither scientists nor religious adherents understand it this way. For the most part, they both wear a veil of misunderstanding and continue to think about religion in terms of the gods. This veil enables both scientists and religious adherents to shield themselves from recognizing the arbitrary nature of their own beliefs. And this enables these superhuman beliefs to play their very important evolutionary role of enabling cooperation. For this reason, it is unlikely that Harari's helpful definition will catch on. Science cannot determine how humans ought to behave without some religious assistance. On the other hand, if science was freed from humanist dogma, we would find that it could tell us all sorts of things that we were previously unable to hear. In particular, science would be able to provide lots of guidance on which behaviors weaken our social cohesion and what we need to do if we want to survive as a species.
although the veil of misunderstanding is still quite firmly in place for Homo sapiens, everywhere there are signs that we are awakening to the reality of our current plight and starting to change. Will it be enough to save us from impending disaster and actually result in a new and improved Homo Deus? Or is this just a fantasy? Although I think the evidence is strong that it will happen, and we will talk about the evidence more in future episodes, it can't be proven. Each of us needs to make our own assessment and then have the courage to act on it. I believe Homo sapiens have the potential to evolve into something great. Joining this movement is an opportunity of a lifetime. It just requires a step of faith. So please join me for the sixth podcast in the series, which focuses on the modern covenant. Modernity is a deal, Harari tells us. Humans agree to give up meaning in exchange for power and endless economic growth. The problem is, this leads to ecological collapse without miracle inventions being made at a quicker and quicker pace. But is it rational to believe in continuing technological miracles? If it isn't rational, how should this realization be incorporated into our forecast of humanity's future? Please join me for Episode 6.